Wow, I'm glad you're here today. Anybody have trouble parking? We have people in the grass. We have people at the rec center. We have cars all over the place today. And uh, because of that, I want to remind you, when we're leaving here, counterclockwise, just like the Indy 500, not as fast. Do what the guys tell you. And they, there's, a, there's a path right through the construction site and out this way if you're back here. That's the way to do it, theoretically. So we're, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we're, it's an exciting time. Uh, we, did you notice something new when you came in? All the steel up. Isn't that great? Yeah, God's, God's blessing us. We're making more room to impact more lives uh, for God's kingdom. We're excited about that. And outdoor baptism today. Uh, we have almost 100 people signed up. And uh, we're, we'll be heading out there after this service They'll be, start serving hot dogs at noon. We, we start baptizing just a little after one. So the third service, we can get over there in time. And so how many of you plan on going? All right. Yeah, that's great. You can bring a chair if you want to sit on the beach. Uh, if you want a chair on the beach, you have to bring a chair on the beach. Is kind of the way that works. And uh, we're excited about it. We're, we're in a series called End Times. And I was going to wrap it up today. I, I couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't pack everything in. And so we're actually going to go one more week so because there's some stuff that I really wanted to cover in light of the news and all the current events that are happening that I just thought uh, would give us the, the kind of the background that we, we need as we, we look at all that. I believe that we're living in, in maybe the most exciting time in all of human history. We have a front row seat to see what God's doing in this world. It's been said that if you, if you want to know what happened yesterday, watch the news on TV. If you want to know what happened today, check out the internet. If you want to know what will happen tomorrow, read your Bible. And, uh, and that's what we're doing. We're kind of looking at scripture to find out what's going on and make sense of the things that we see and what God has promised that's going to happen. And again, no one knows the time of Christ's return. We, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, we don't know the week, the month, or even the year. We do not know. When, when his return starts with something called the rapture, we'll get into a little more detail next week, but we don't know when that's going to happen. But Christians and others who study scripture have noticed that there's a, an amazing similarity between what we see unfolding in world events today... And what was predicted in the Bible centuries ago. And, and that's what we're focused in on today. Remember, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they could forecast the weather by looking at the sky. But they, they missed the, his whole return. They, they didn't recognize that. And of course what Jesus was talking about is a couple of things there. One, that he was performing signs that were prophesied in the Old Testament... But the other thing is, I believe that Jesus was referring back that you could look in the Old Testament and map it out to the exact time when you would expect the Messiah to come. And that's in a book called Daniel in the Old Testament and specifically Daniel chapter 9. I wanted to take some time to look at Daniel 9 and try to lay that out because I believe this is, it's the key 
to all prophetic prophecy. As a matter of fact, this chapter has been called different things. Some people call it the backbone of Bible prophecy. Uh, some, you know, it, it's just, it's kind of what everything hinges on when we look at future events. It, a lot of that just comes down to uh, Daniel chapter 9. It's also called God's prophetic clock. And what happens is, if, if I could just kind of paint the, the picture for you, Daniel is writing and he's in exile. He's in exile in Babylon. And he's been there almost 70 years with some, with some other Jewish people. And apparently he's been reading the prophet of Jeremiah. And because of that, he knows that their exile, which was predicted, was only going to happen for about 70 years. And now the 70 years is about up. And so he starts praying to God about what's going to happen next and what God is going to do with Israel. And then God answers that prayer by giving him some information that really has to do with Israel's history till the end of the world. And that's what Daniel's 70 weeks are about. How many of you have heard of Daniel's 70 weeks? And the wording there can be a little misleading because when you study it, what you realize, and probably all of you already know this, is the word weeks just really mean a week is a seven. A week is seven days. A week is a seven. And that's 70 sevens. And as you get into it, you realize it's actually 70 periods of seven years each. 70 sevens. And that's what we're going to kind of focus in on. But, uh, but as we get there, let's turn to Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. And let's read what... What it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the starting point, for this clock, until Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Total of 69. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, which he already mentioned seven, so that's after the 69, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This is the crucifixion of Jesus. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So that's kind of the, what's already happened. And so the clock started with the rebuilding of a decree. It took seven years, seven sevens or 49 years to build it. And then it continued, and then that's when the Messiah came. And now here's the future, verse 40, 27. And he will make, this is the prince who is to come, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the 70th week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction 
one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, so that's Daniel chapter 9. Again, he's talking about 70 weeks, and those are 70 weeks of years. And basically, Daniel predicted 100 years before this decree was made, he predicted the decree would happen, and from there, uh, you can count the years to when the Messiah would come. So he said there's seven sevens, that's 49 years, that was rebuilding the temple, then it would, um, rebuilding Jerusalem, then it would be built, and then there would be 62 sevens, or 434 years, and that's the 69 weeks, or 483 years. So from the decree that Artaxerxes made about 100 years after Daniel wrote this, to the coming of Jerusalem, and Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday before his crucifixion, what we call the triumphal entry when he wrote, rode on the colt of a donkey in through the eastern gate of Jerusalem was exactly 483 years. And I believe part of what Jesus was challenging the Pharisees with is they should have expected his coming, knowing that's come, not just from the signs he'd done, that, that he had done in front of them, but also because of the timing that was written in Daniel that they could understand even better than we can today with our calendars. So we're looking at that. Now, this last week is still future. That's Daniel's 70th week. So kind of here's how it maps out, and we're going to get way more detail next Sunday. But seven weeks plus 62 weeks, that's a 69... 69 weeks, that's 483 years. This focus was on Israel as it was before because these are all Israel prophets. But I put this on a mountain background because here's kind of how it was with the prophets. Everything that they were doing really concerned Israel. And so there was kind of a valley here that the prophets didn't really see. And this is a mystery, as it's called in the Bible. The church age, it's the gap between the six, Daniel's 69th week when the Messiah is cut off, when he's crucified, and then the 70th week, which is the week of tribulation. Now, the 70th week is still, still future. Rapture is going to happen before that. We'll get into a whole bunch of details that are going to happen here. And, uh, and this one week is divided in half, three and a half years, three and a half years. Even in the Bible, it's counted down to the day based on a 360-day year that Israel had. 1260 days, 1260 days. These events, you'll find out, excluding the rapture, when a peace treaty is signed, you will be able to count the days and predict what's going to happen because it's laid out for us in Scripture. So want, wanted you to kind of have an understanding of that. But regarding predictive prophecy, there, the main thing that, that we get from Daniel chapter 9, why, why Daniel is so important is predictive prophecy is telling us that God will keep his people. And actually, if you think about it, from AD 70, destruction of the temple, from 1948, there was no Israel nation. And Israel as a people, the Jewish people were dispersed all over the world really, in about 70 countries. And no other people have been able to retain their national or cultural identity 
in that length of time. Typically, when somebody is, when a people is dispersed or they're, they're absorbed by another nation, within five generations, their cultural identity disappears. Within about 200 years, they're just the people where they live. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's happened with every other people in the world except for the Jewish people. They're very unique in that. Not only have they survived, but the other countries that were around last time Israel was around, they were surrounded by other countries. All those other countries are gone. Moab, Ammon, Edom, Philistia, many others. They've all either been destroyed, they're lost, there's no people going by those names. Have you ever heard of a Swedish Moabite? You know, because they've been dispersed somewhere. Or a Russian Philistine? No, you don't hear anything like that. Have you heard of a German Edomite? Or an American Ammonite? No, we don't hear anything like that. But, on the other hand, have you heard of an American Jew? A Russian Jew? A German Jew? Yet we've all probably heard of that because they've remained distinct, not for five generations, not a couple of hundred years, almost two thousand years they've remained distinct as a people and nothing like that has ever happened the other thing kind of remarkable i won't get into it is they revived ancient hebrew none of these people spoke hebrew in their everyday language they spoke wherever they were if they were still in palestine they spoke arab if they were in any other country they spoke russian or german or italian or english wherever they were at since they become a nation they revived their language as well. Now, but I want to talk about the rebirth of Israel as a nation. The rebirth of Israel, to me, it's not just a sign. Some people call it a super sign because so much, almost every other end times prophecy hinges in one way or another on the presence of the Jewish people in the land. And in Jerusalem. So you've got to understand that for 1900 years, Christians were reading their Bible. And everything that was happening, all this prophecy was, was talking about the Jewish people being in Israel. But there was no Israel when all that was written. And now there is. And we're the generation that has a front row seat to see what God is going to do through Israel. Passage of scripture, not only is it a super sign, the regathering of Israel, because so much other prophecy hinges on it, it also was prophesied that they would be regathered. Look at Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered. On a cloud, cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. Now, 
We hear about Israel all the time in the news. And I think sometimes, because you're hearing about it all the time, you forget how small of a place Israel actually is. Israel is a country, we hear about it all the time, it's a country only about the size of New Jersey. The entire country of Israel, about the size of New Jersey, around 8,000 square miles is all the bigger Israel's. By contrast, look, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, all these en enemies of Israel, Israel's the smallest one. It's right there, surrounded by, by all these people. Now, Arab and Jewish people have always lived in, in Palestine, but the Jewish people never had a homeland. And so they started a movement, Zionism, to create a place where Jewish people could live. And there was a reason for that. Because they were being persecuted in several different countries around the world. In the 1930s, for example, before World War II, they were being persecuted in Russia. Jewish people were being killed. And they had a substantial Jewish population there. And then, of course, we all heard, we know what happened in Germany with the rise of Hitler. By the way, Hitler, in his book Mein Kampf, when he wrote that, he discusses in that the amazing fact that the Jewish people have remained distinct for 1900 years. He talks about that and even alludes like, what is this, a God thing? He doesn't say it like that, but he's saying what kind of a providence has, has made it this way? He's the guy killing them. And so through all this, the Jewish people trying to establish a homeland in Palestine. So you have Russians killing Jews who were against Germany right in World War II. You have Germany killing Jews. We are all familiar with that. We had British who controlled Palestine, who because of pressure from Arab countries, didn't allow Jewish people to immigrate into Israel, into Palestine. They choked that off. Even though the Jewish people were being killed in Russia, they're trying to get out, they're trying to come to Palestine. The Britain first started restricting it and then started stopping it and actually started detaining them in Cyprus. Same thing with Germany. Jewish people are trying to get out of Germany and they're trying to go to Palestine, but the British wouldn't let them come in because of pressure from Arab nations. So this is kind of the context. Now, as World War II ends, even before the World War II ended, everybody recognizes, especially Britain, that there is a problem in the Middle East. There's a problem in Palestine. You have these Jewish people who are there and many others trying to get in. And you have Arab people, or there's really not any modern towns or anything, but you have Arab people who are there in the land and they're in conflict because the Arabs don't want the Jewish people to be there even though they've been in a presence there for a long, long time, a remnant. And so it's a problem. So they come up with a plan to partition Palestine. Some of it goes to Israel. Some of it goes, you know, Jewish people and some to Arab people. But the Arab, and Israel, the Jewish people say, okay, we'll do that. And the Arab people say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to wipe them out. Then World War II happens. There's a world sympathy now more for the Jewish people. Uh, because of the Balfour Declaration, some details there, Britain was kind of committed to helping them out as well. And so then the United Nations got together and they decided, yes, this is what we need to do. The United Nations voted to partition 
Palestine between Jewish people and Arab people. And so they did that, and they offered that to the Jewish people, and they said, okay, we'll take it. And they offered that to the Arab people, and the Arab people say, no, we're going to wipe them out again. No change. And so then the British set a timetable for when they were going to pull out of Palestine. They turned over their military installations all to the Arabs. They pulled out, and immediately when they pulled out, Israel declared themselves a nation May 14th. 1948, in the afternoon, I think their ceremony started at, at 4 o'clock, just before sunset when the Sabbath would begin. And so they, they did that. Their, that ceremony took about 30 minutes. They proclaimed it on the radio. And the first country to recognize Israel's sovereignty was who? United States of America, under President Truman, first country that recognizes him. Later that evening at midnight, war breaks out. The bombers come over, and this new half-day-old, a few hours old Israel is now in a war of independence that lasted about a year. It was Israel against, you can show that map again, Israel against Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. All these countries, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, uh, Lebanon, all this against Israel. And when the fighting, and Israel had no army. They had no weapons. They, they were trying to get weapons. They were trying to get, they were trying to purchase supplies. They were outnumbered. Their armies were outnumbered more than a hundred to one. A year later, a truce is called in the fighting. And not only has Israel survived, like all those Arab countries wanted to wipe them out, but they actually end up with 23 more percent of ter their territories 23% bigger than the original partition plan that was offered to them by the United Nations. And that's how they start their country. How many of you have ever been in a fight? Maybe that's, maybe that's not a hand raiser. <laughs> Probably a lot of you have been in a fight, right? Have you, have you ever been in a fight that you didn't want to be in? You know, where you didn't want to fight, but somebody's fighting you and you have to defend yourself. That's Israel. Over and over and over and over again, they're being punched by these other nations that don't think they have a right to exist. And when it comes, you know, Israel's not saying any of them don't have a right to exist. Just one way. The next war, there's four major wars. It's the Sinai War. This happened in 1956, less than 10 years later. Egypt is now backed by Russia. Russia is a major superpower. Russia finances Egypt, gives them all the equipment, and then Egypt moves up through the Sinai, Sinai Peninsula. That's bigger than Israel. You know, they move up 
across that and they amass all these weapons on the border and they say they're going to attack. This time, Israel does a preemptive strike as they amass everything on the Sinai right on Israel's border. Israel attacks. They, they fight for a few months. Again, Israel wins. They win the entire Sinai Peninsula, not, not even on this map. And they get to the Suez Canal, which Egypt had tried to nationalize, which all, all, had always been international waters. Egypt says, we're going to control this, mainly to keep Jewish shipping out. And so they take the Suez Canal as well. And then under pressure from the United States, they give all that back. They withdraw. They give them back the Suez Canal. They give them back the Sinai. 1967. Less, you know, about 10 years later, the United States is embroiled in Vietnam. And there's another attack on Israel. Russia, this time, backs Syria and Egypt, north and south of Israel. Russia, superpower, backing them. Egypt is also commanding Jordanian troops. That's four countries fighting. There's a six-day war. And at the end of six days, they surprise attacked Israel. Six days later, there's a ceasefire and Israel gains the entire Sinai Peninsula. Let's throw that, that, last, that last one up. They've gained the entire Sinai Peninsula. They gained the West Bank. They gained the Golan Heights. By the way, the Golan Heights is where Syria had been shelling. This is high ground on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Had been shelling Israel since their existence. They just took that. And those are the three places, and the Gaza Strip, those are the three places that you hear about all the time, right? The Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Golan Heights. These are places that Israel took and then controlled because they were, kept being attacked from those places. West Bank never belonged to Jordan. West Bank, Bank was part of Palestine. It was Transjordan until 1939, and then later it was Jordan. But that never belonged to them, you know. But now they, they say they have a claim to that. But anyway, after all that stuff, and then that's not the only war. Less than 10 years later, we have the Yom Kippur War, 1973. Egypt and Syria launch a surprise attack on Israel during their holiday, Yom Kippur. And again, Israel wins decisively. Now, here's the deal. In none of these battles... Would anybody look at it on paper and think Israel can possibly win? And every time, they not only won, they won decisively and conquered territory. Of course, what happens is, like they, they take the Sinai Peninsula where they keep being... Finally, they gave the Sinai Peninsula back for peace. Saying, Egypt, we'll give you this back, you know, in exchange for saying we can exist and having peace with us. So they gave the Sinai Peninsula back. That's about the size of Israel. Back to them. And then they go to Syria and say, we'll give you the Golan Heights back for peace. Because Syria keeps saying, we want the Golan. They'll say, we'll give you the Golan Heights back in exchange for peace. And Syria says, no. No, we're not going to sign any kind of a peace agreement with you ever. That's what's happening in the Middle East. 
you just saw the picture flash up there. It kind of got out of order. But think about Six-Day War, 1967. The troops finally got Jerusalem. That's when they took the West Bank. And for the first time, they, they could go to the Wailing Wall that the Jordanians had kept them out of since they had declared their independence for 20 years. And you have them, uh, these people, these soldiers running to the wall. Remember, Jesus prophesied before he died. They were looking at the temple and he said, not one stone is going to be remains on top of another. He's talking about the temple that was built up here on what's called the Temple Mount. Now what's there is there's a Dome of the Rock over here. There's a mosque over on this side on the Temple Mount grounds. This was a retaining wall just to hold the dirt. This is level dirt up here. A retaining wall built at Herod's time for the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is the most holy site for Jewish people because it's the closest they can go to where the temple used to be without being harassed. Now, Israel controls the Temple Mount now, but they allow the Arab people to worship there and even control that mountain for religious purposes. In no Arab country is there freedom of religion. In no Arab majority country do you have any freedom of religion. Israel, not that way. And I'm telling you, just within the last few years was the first time in history that there were more people, more Jewish people in Israel than in any other country who had the most Jewish people 10 years ago was the United States. Now for the first time, it's swung where there's more Jewish people in Israel than there is in the United States, and it's growing. There's like 6 million Jewish people in Israel now. By the way, during all this, Arab people who lived in Israel, they granted them full citizenship. It's not like they're saying you got to leave or anything. Arab people live in Israel. A lot of Arab people live in Israel. But they're embroiled. They're constantly being attacked from the Gaza Strip. Why? Because even though Israel owns the Gaza Strip, they've given it to the Palestinians to administer and control. And so what happens? They're constantly being bombarded from the Gaza Strip. It's, it's just crazy. And now, today, we have the Iran deal. Iran is a country that is dedicated to the destruction of Israel, and if they could, the United States. They're, they're, they have a country where the religion, where the leaders of the country say, Death to Israel and death to America. Not just the crowd in the street. The leaders say this. As a matter of fact, here's, here's what the supreme leader in Iran said just here in the last few weeks. No, I'm sorry, in the last few days. Just this last week, a few days ago. Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei posted what many consider incendiary comments about Israel. He flatly predicted that Israel won't be around 25 years from now. And he warned that between now and then, Israel would have to worry about what he called the, quote, spirit of fighting heroism and jihad, unquote. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu quickly responding to Mr. Khamenei's posts, he reportedly said this, quote, 
Khamenei doesn't even leave any room for the supporters of the Iran nuclear agreement to fantasize in. Now, Mr. Netanyahu arrived Thursday in London, where he met British Prime Minister David Cameron at 10 Downing Street. He asserted that the Middle East is, quote, disintegrating and said, but said there is much that Israel and Britain can do to stop it. The Iran deal, I just want to give you a biblical basis for viewing this. The Iran deal. America sends $100 billion to Iran. We lift the arms embargo. This is the deal. We allow them to pursue nuclear technology as they promise not to use. Of course, they've been promising that for years. They've never kept a promise yet. For the promise that they'll use it for peaceful means. As they're saying they need nuclear power sitting on one of the largest oil reserves in the world. This makes no sense. It's really, it's crazy what we're doing. And it's interesting to see how this is going to turn out. I mean, this is heading for a nightmare. And we see all these pieces lining up and it's all happening right now we got a front row seat we're checking it out and we have scripture that tells us how everything's going to fall into place and we see it all happening right before our very eyes now when will god come back when will jesus come back the correct answer is i don't know maybe we should practice that ask your neighbor when is jesus coming back and answer them what's the answer don't no, but we see these things happening every day on the news that's pointing to the time, that's lining it all up. Think about this. Israel's unique as a nation. What other nation on earth has several other nations surrounding them, larger nations, saying, we will destroy you? Nobody says that about any other country. Nobody's saying that about Jordan or Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Iran or Egypt or anybody else. We're, nobody says that about North Korea. Israel's unique as a nation. And they, people keep trying to destroy them and it doesn't happen. Look what scripture says, Zechariah 10.6. Here's why. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. And they, with their children, will live and come back. Verse 9 says, I'm sorry, that was it. Yeah, verse 9. Today, when you fly into Tel Aviv, the inter only international airport, I think, in Israel, you fly into Tel Aviv, you go to the airport. As you're leaving the airport, you'll see banners hanging. They have a scripture on them. Jeremiah 31, 17, it says this. Of course, it says it in Hebrew, but there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. So what's coming? Well, for Israel, a powder keg. Israel 
is the fuse that's lit to the powder keg of the end times. And what about us? The most important thing that we need to understand is that we have this chance now to be right with God. The whole Bible is a story about God redeeming his creation, redeeming sinful mankind to himself through the promised one, the Messiah, who had come through a special people, Israel, who had come from a special man, Abraham. You see, Scripture tells us that God created us. We do have a creator. God created us. We're not here by accident. And that God wanted a relationship with us. But in order for us to have a real relationship with God, we have to have free will. We can't be robots always doing what God wants. He has to give us the will to want to be with him. And because of that great gift of free will, all of us, every human being, has sinned, has done wrong according to God. We've all violated God's commands. And the problem with that is God is not just a powerful creator, he's also perfectly just. And his justice, in the end, there will be perfect justice in God's universe. And perfect justice demands that sin be punished. All sin must be punished. Just like if we were a judge and we wanted to dispense justice, sin, wrong, has to be punished. Which is bad news for every single human being, including you and me. Because we all deserve punishment for our personal sin against God. But God also is a God of love. He loves us. He can't violate his justice. But he loves us. And because of that, he made a way. The whole Bible is the story about the way that he created he allowed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to leave heaven, to come to earth, clothe himself in humanity, live a perfect, sinless life, and voluntarily give up his life in payment and sacrifice for us. He would allow himself to be killed, put to death, executed, to pay our penalty sin and that's exactly what he did 2,000 years ago and what that means is he has created a way for us to be reconciled to God forever but we have to accept it we have to trust faith is the key that makes Christ's sacrifice Accredited to our account. We, we cannot earn a relationship with God. There's nothing that we can do that can erase any sin in our life. There's no religious ritual we can do. There's no churchy thing that can happen that takes away sins or mitigates our standing before God. Just one thing. 
There's nothing we can do. There's no action we can take. God's calling us. He's offering us this gift that we receive by faith. Which means we place our trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. When we do that, we become a believer. And, and, and you'll know if somebody's sincere because they'll at least have the desire to follow God. Which is repentance. And the question is, have you done that? Have you come to that point in your life? We're going to get into a lot of specific details about prophecy next time. But before we do that, I, I just wanted to stop and give you an opportunity to respond to God. I'd like us all to bow our heads. And here, here's what I'm going to do. Just I know a lot of you are, are new to grace. You're going to, just going to lead you in a prayer. John 1.12, which is kind of the theme of the whole book of John, says, But as many as received him, they became the children of God, as many as who believed. You see, what makes us right with God, it, because it's a gift that we cannot earn, is just that we respond to God in faith, in trust, in belief. So if you're at all fuzzy about where you stand with God this morning, you can clear that up forever right now. Simply by placing your trust in Christ and what he did for you and him alone and realize that you're not bringing anything to the table. No good works, no good deeds, nothing. It's just all Jesus. Romans 10 tells us that we can call on the Lord to be saved. And so I want to lead you in a prayer. You don't have to say it out loud. God knows your every thought. God knows everything about you. Your deepest secret. Your most intense fears. Every sin. But he loves you anyway. And he wants you to respond to what he's done for you. So if you're ready to take that step of faith, you can... You can verbalize that to God through prayer again. You can do it silently, but maybe just follow me in a prayer like this. If you're placing your trust in Christ, you can express it this way. Silently in your own heart to God. It just has to be sincere. God in heaven, I thank you for giving me life. And I admit that I have sinned against you like everyone else. And that means I personally deserve to be punished for my sin because it's wrong. It's the right thing for me to be punished. But God, I also understand that you love me. And you've made a way for me to be forgiven without violating your justice. Through what your son, Jesus Christ, has done. And so, Father, right now, I'm putting my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone and what he's done for me on Calvary. Dying for my sins, that's all I have. God, I ask you to come into my life by way of your spirit. And, Lord, help me to live in a way that pleases you. 
And God, I know me living in a certain way, that's not what saves me. What Jesus did saves me. Me trying to follow you, that's just an evidence of what you've already done for me. God, thanks for loving me, even me. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to keep our heads bowed for just a moment just so I can pray for you. I'm just going to ask you by section if, if you've uh, made this decision today just to pop your hand up for me, kind of make eye contact and put it right back down. I'm not going to call you down here or do anything embarrassing just so I can pray for you. So over here on the Smith Road side, anyone there, pray that prayer today. Today you've placed your trust in Christ. Not sure if you've ever done that before. Just put your hand up and then just put it right back down just so I can see you. Just put it up, right back down. How about this middle section here? I see you right there. Thanks. I see you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thanks. Just pop it up where I can see it. Put it right back down. Thank you, sir. Just put it up and right back down. Thanks. In this section over here in front of the, the soundboard, uh, just saying, hey, Kevin, I just want you to know I'm, I'm trusting in Christ. I I don't know if I've ever done this before, but I just want to make this clear that I'm doing it now. Just raise your hand so I can see it. Thank you. See you. Thanks. Anyone else? Kevin, I prayed that prayer. And then on the end over here, all the way toward the coffee area, if that's true of you, thank you. Thanks for your boldness. I see you back there, sir. Thanks. Thank you. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, we thank you so much for, for these who, just like us, or that you've allowed them to see your love for them, and you've helped them to respond by faith. Lord, we know exactly how they feel. Many of us have been in that same spot. And God, we pray that uh, they would feel your connection, Lord, new life. Lord, that you would help them to, to follow you. And we pray that they don't have a church home, that they would, they would come here at Grace Community as we follow God together, learn more about you. God, thank you for loving us. Thanks for the blessing. Thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you for the changed lives that we see every day here in grace. But thanks for loving us in spite of our sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's been a fantastic day. I want to invite all of you to go out to White Star Park in Gibsonburg. Uh, take 20, hang a left on Four Mile House Road, and then your first ride will take you right out there. There will be guys parking you. We're going to have hot dogs starting at noon. And then we're going to try to start baptizing right about 1 o'clock or shortly thereafter. And we'd love to see you there. If you want a chair, stop by the house, grab a lawn chair or something like that. We're all going to be sitting on a beach. A lot of people don't mind sitting in the sand. If you need a chair, you can grab that. Hope to see you there. See you next Sunday. Have a great day. You're dismissed.